Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. This is Finnerin's Wake, hosted by yours truly, Daniel Ethan Finnerin. This will actually be the first of a two-part series examining from both sides the issue of abortion. That most delicate subject for whose safe handling, a soft touch, a gentle bearing, a careful approach, a sympathetic perspective, and an open mind above all are needed. Simmering, simmering, simmering. In a state just beneath the dangerous threshold of boiling, has this issue persisted for the better part of the past half century. Ever since the Supreme Court ruled in 1973 that a woman's ability to procure an abortion could not be restrained during her first trimester of pregnancy, the country's been cast into the turbulent depths of a national debate, a violent, moral storm out of which she's proven incapable of pulling herself. It was in that year, 1973, that the infamous case of Roe v. Wade was decided. To note, I label it infamous not to provoke its supporters' ire nor to invite the censure of those for whom it's been a political boon. No, it's not my intent to disclose from the outset and in a deliberate manner my own personal bias, but to highlight the enduring criticism and near-universal disapproval to which the case is, from a constitutional perspective, rightfully subjected. In brief, Roe, whose real name was Norma McCovey, sought an abortion in the state of Texas, by whose restrictive laws every effort on her part to obtain one was frustrated. Texas, at the time, prohibited abortions in almost all cases. It exempted only those that might, in extremis, serve as a last-ditch remedy, if, God forbid, the life of the mother was in imminent danger and the destruction of the fetus was the only means by which she might be saved. It should be noted that an abortion sought outside Texas could be and often was much more readily accessible. Indeed, each state was more or less permissive about the matter, depending on the mores of its population. Ultimately, the Supreme Court, led by Justice Blackman, sided with Roe and struck down Texas's restrictive law, citing a vague right to privacy, of which the Constitution makes no explicit mention. Whether or not that was good law or bad is not, at present, our concern. Our concern, rather, at least for this episode, is abortion viewed through a philosophical, not a constitutional lens. And so, with that, in this first episode, I'll put forth the three strongest arguments for abortion. If a disclaimer is still needed, I do so not as an advocate for the chillingly euphemistic pro-choice position, 
but as an honest thinker, eager to steal man a contrary view. And so, with that, the weakest of the strong arguments in favor of abortion is that from history or from historical precedence. CNN's unabashed onanist, I'll leave it to you to look that word up on your own, and legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin put the matter most concisely when he began a 2009 article featured in The New Yorker with the following macabre observation. Abortion, he said, is almost as old as childbirth. Indeed, the former is nearly coeval with the latter. Since time immemorial, abortifacients have been prescribed, if I can use that word in, a, in an anachronistic way, by tribal elders, uh, spiritual gurus, medicine men, crude apothecaries, and midwives. Herbs and instruments, elixirs and forceps, and many other ingenious devices were employed for the relief of a woman's burden. For hundreds of thousands of years, then, this practice of abortion has been carried out by countless generations of humans. And to what end, you might ask? Well, to unburden the female of a weight to which the tribe's scant resources couldn't be diverted. To put a check on the growth of the population, whose multiplication of mouths had become prohibitively expensive to feed. To snuff out the seed of a rival, whose progeny might, in time, threaten your home and your camp and your bloodline to revert to a state of fertility a woman whose nine gestational months would be, for the uh, impatient, lascivious caveman, intolerable. <laughs> it's not hard to understand why, in our pre-civilized state, the fetuses were not uncommonly aborted. And thus, in the words of Tubin, our propensity to nip in the bud the unwanted growth of unborn life seems to be equally strong as the urge that drives us to procreation. Both tendencies, that toward life and that toward death, appear to be planted to the same depth in the human soul, under the tension of whose ambivalence the child is either the beneficiary or the victim. Following this argument, the sanction of time, the conferral of legitimacy by ancient and unbroken practice, does much to validate abortion. Allow me briefly to mention Ovid, the great poet by whom Latin literature in the age of Augustus was delightfully embellished. In his Amores, Written in the first decade after the birth of Christ, he talks at length of abortion. Corinna, his lover, is pregnant, for which the lusty poet is assumed to be responsible. He goes on, surprisingly, to employ his verse in defense of the unborn child, of whom he may or may not be the father. I'll recite his eloquent pro-life stanzas in the next episode covering this subject from the other angle. 
For now, I simply want to use Ovid to highlight the subject of abortion as it appears in our cultural history. Of course, it extends far back before the golden age of Ovid, both Hippocrates, father of Western medicine, and Aristotle, father of physical science, make reference to it. But does not the institution of, say, slavery do the same? It's here that this particular argument in favor of abortion hits a snare. That a practice is old well, says nothing about its morality. Just because our crude ancestors did it, and the refined Aristotle endorsed it, doesn't mean we ought to imitate their barbaric ways. If, as Tupin claimed, abortion is coeval with childbirth, he must agree that slavery is as old as human relations. It's an unflattering but unavoidable fact. He must then be willing to sanction, based on that logic, the continued enslavement of his fellow human beings in the modern day. We're left with the following. Abortion is unobjectionable because it is old. So too is slavery, on account of its age. No thinking person would agree to that. Nor shall we. But I respond, slavery and abortion are two very different things. The former involves the subjugation, the dehumanization, the brutalization, the defilement, coercion, and mistreatment of another full-grown rational human being. Abortion, on the other hand, is personal. It's an intimate affair. It's an act carried out by a woman on herself. She visits no violence upon another. She is the cause of no one else's suffering or pain. She infringes the rights of no other. She brutalizes no other sentient being to whom, as a rational person, the protections of the law ought to extend. She is acting, rather, for the maintenance of her own health, for the promotion of her own well-being in accordance with the doctrine that she is in every way and at root an unfettered, autonomous person. And, as an autonomous person, she's fully capable of deciding exactly what form that well-being will take. She can do unto herself whatever she'd like done, no questions asked. This, you might say, is the libertarian argument for abortion, and it's strongly, even persuasively made. Is our imagined woman not, as we all wish to be, an uncoerced individual? Is she not empowered, by the original mandate of freedom, to do unto herself whatever she pleases? Is she not a truly free human being, upon whose body neither the state, nor the church, nor anyone else for that matter can impose its meddlesome will? The libertarians who promote the decriminalization of all drugs and the freedom of the individual to poison himself with any noxious substance at his disposal might champion this view. Of course, in the case of the inebriate, the risk of harm is totally assumed by him and him alone. He will consume the drug, 
We'll feel the high. We'll enjoy the temporary elevation. We'll suffer the inglorious descent back to sobriety. And we'll, perhaps, should he so choose, risk death by engaging in this euphoric lethal game again and again and again. As it pertains to abortion, however, the libertarian argument from bodily autonomy fails to consider the second party involved. It's not just one body's autonomy with which we're dealing. There is at the center of the picture, indeed just about the navel, the growing fetus, that multiplying clump of cells to whom any moment now a rather undesirable thing is bound to happen. This, of course, requires the recognition of a discreet, though underdeveloped form of life existing in the womb. If you can reject the fundamental humanity of the unborn child, to whom, because he's in or sub-human, no dignity need be granted, you need not bother yourself much. But is he human? Is he endowed with the same humanity that you and I enjoy? An arresting question with which one must contend. Is that not a little libertarian in the womb? <laughs> There's also the question of whether or not the unborn child has what you, as a mature adult listening to my velvety voice, might call autonomy. Autonomy. Is he, bobbing there in a sea of uterine fluid, not fully dependent on his maternal host, outside the nourishing confines of whose womb he'd find it impossible to flourish and grow? In the womb, then, the fetus can make no claim to autonomy. But here, the libertarian argument from bodily autonomy hits a snare. By the foregoing logic, infants and young children aren't properly autonomous for many years. Is the execution, then, of a three-month-old baby suddenly permissible because it must be actively brought to the breast to suck and feed? because its fragile neck must be supported and its soft head guarded at all times, because its soiled diaper must be changed if skin degradation and bacterial infection are to be avoided. And, at the other end of the spectrum, just how autonomous is a comatose man, 62 years of age into whose trachea the tube of a ventilator has just been placed? His consciousness has left him. His capacity to reason is gone. The flame of his wit has been extinguished. There is in his stony face no flickering sign of sentience to be found. What, I ask you, in his state is the status of his bodily autonomy? Remove from him one of those tubes, one of those ivies, one of those nurses overseeing his care around the clock, and he'd perish in but a few minutes.
Is that autonomy? On now to the final argument for abortion. This is the third and, in some ways, the strongest argument in favor of abortion. Abortion, it's claimed, is conducive to the health of the mother. Now, as I'm sure you've detected, the term health is quite liberally defined these days. Indeed, its definition has been expanded to include everything from physical to social to psychological to financial and even professional health. This expansion is deliberate. Under the capacious umbrella of health, just about every particular claim, want, exigency, or need, whether or not it relates to health properly understood, can be gathered and acknowledged. The weakest examples of health include those relating to a woman's financial situation or to her career aspirations. The termination of incipient life isn't easily justified by a small number in one's bank account or by the hope of a larger one to come should you secure a promotion in the next nine months. A slightly less weak example of health is a woman's psychological state, but again, that she has misgivings, regrets, or frustrations about her pregnancy, that she feels depressed to the point of pathology during these overwhelming nine months, must override the unborn child's right to live in this world. I'm not sure that they do, but I'll leave that to you to decide. Finally, there's what I think is the strongest argument that, for the preservation of the woman's physical health, abortion might, in extremis, be called for. In this scenario, a mortal decision must present itself. The life of the child, or the life of the mother. This is a strong, solemn, but lamentable argument from which, frankly, most pro-choice advocates have moved away in recent years. Although such instances are vanishingly rare, thank God, if a mother's life is imperiled by some ailment for which no cure, save that of the killing of her unborn child, suggests itself, medical necessity would deem the procedure not only permissible, but urgent. That, I think, is the strongest argument for abortion. Okay, let's exhale and recap. The goal of this sensitive, heavy episode was not to disclose to you, my dear listener, my opinion on the topic of abortion. If I did my job as intended and adroitly played the role of impartial, disinterested speaker, as I set out to do, you'll leave this little talk happily ignorant of where I stand. We should, in a free, open, and curious society, be able to articulate, embrace, 
play with and weigh every idea, especially those ideas on which so much hinges in the political realm. And there is no idea more clouded by euphemism, shoddy reasoning, and cant than that of abortion. I hope to have shed some light on the matter. Now, in my next episode, I will offer a rejoinder. I'll put forth the best argument of which I can think against abortion. My hope is that you'll listen to both, weigh both sides, and uh, finally decide for yourself. By this method, and this method only, that we'll be able to grapple with these difficult issues, uh, to appreciate their strengths, to scrutinize their weaknesses, and ultimately rise above the shallow bickering and vapid virtue signaling in which we've been immersed. With that, be sure to leave a five-star rating on this video. It asks so little of you and yet means so much to me. So glance down, swipe that screen, and press that five stars. Now, also, subscribe to this channel for more conversations on these difficult topics. And feel free to send me emails if you want any others addressed. Until next time, farewell. From